There's something about the summer season. I, I don't know if you can hark back to those days where you'd get those long three-month breaks. Wasn't that awesome? I'm really kind of fighting for that again. Nine months a year and then get take three months off. I think it's a really good thing. There, there's, excuse me. There's something about the summer that is uh, really a cool. There's something about the summer and journey that is pretty awesome. And I'm just going to tell you a brief history. Every summer since we've started, it becomes one of our biggest seasons. I don't know why. Other churches kind of slow down and minimize and kind of, kind of tailor down some of their ministries. For whatever reason, it's not like we do anything else. People come and journey. We just have this phenomenon of having great and awesome summers. Here's kind of what happens during the summer. We started off with Serve Day with tons of people. Jeremy convicted us to get more than six. Dustin kind of threatened us to get more than 15. And we had a ton of people celebrating and, and, and really serving. It was really powerful. Uh, and I love doing that because my heart is a heart of servant. But here's the summer. We have graduation. Today, nowadays, you know, you graduate from kindergarten and third grade to fourth and fifth to eighth and whatever it is. There's all kinds of graduation. So we, we have all kinds of graduations, both college and high school and junior high and preschool to kindergarten, whatever it is. And that's always an exciting season. Then the greatest holiday of the year. Everybody know which one that is? It's Father's Day. It's coming up. Put it on your calendar, and I'll, we'll tell you exactly what we need. And then, for some, it's vacation. In July, we have missions trips, 4th of July, and then we have more missions trips. And then we have a birthday party that's going to come up. It's going to be awesome, and we're going to have some smash ball and some unbelievable barbecue. And then, hopefully, a few more vacations. And then, in August, we're going to have vacation Bible school, and then we're going to have kids camp, junior high are going to go to Catalina, and then we're going to have the high schoolers at a beach house, which is going to be pretty awesome. I'll be there all week hanging out, making sure they're doing the right thing. And then we'll close off the summer with beach baptism and maybe even a church in the park. We haven't really got to that yet, but maybe in September we might do a church in the park, but don't get your hopes up. We might shoot it down too. The idea here is there's a lot of stuff going on, and we've spread it out over, over our, our summer to have a really awesome, impactful summer. Our summer series usually are uh, extended. Instead of doing like a four or six or eight-week series, we're going to do a 12-week series. We've been doing them every year since we've, been a part, uh, since we've been a church. This one will be a 12-week series called the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go through some of the great scriptures in the Bible from the Sermon on the Mount. It won't be verse by verse through it. It will be picked out every week. The way that we teach here on Sundays is we actually open up the Word of God on Monday or Tuesday, depending on who's teaching. We pray, God, what do you want to say on Sunday? And so somehow, some way, the words on the Sermon on the Mount will come to us in a very powerful way throughout the summer. The reason why we do a long series is because people are going to be kind of ebbing and flowing, and we want to make sure they're connected to the sermon series throughout the whole summer. So it's really important to us that we understand that. Now, what is the Sermon on the Mount? I, I do want to make a brief announcement. There's a picture of actually the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's called Mount Beatitudes. It's actually a physical place in Israel. Now, we are going back to Israel in February 2018. A couple weeks ago, I was supposed to have an informational meeting in room four, and I never made it. Some of you guys held me up, and I never made it. So sorry for the lady that was in there for about 30 minutes waiting, uh, if that was you. Um, email Jeremy, Jeremy at Journey of the Church. He'd love to take all complaints. Um, 
But this is an actual physical place that we go to. And if you look at the next slide as we go to it, we will go to this place if you go to Israel with us. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens in this region. This, this church up top is called the, the Mount Beatitudes Church. And the acoustics in this one room is phenomenal. Even for a singer like me, I sound, I sound pretty good. Right, Letty? I sound pretty good. Everybody ran from that section, but I sounded good to myself. And then below, it's the multiplication church, the loaves of fish. And you see that's where Jesus multiplied and served in that basket. And then over to this other place, it's the primacy of St. Peter. And that's where Peter was reinstated. Do you, love my, do you love me, Lord? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. And that's where Jesus is re, or Peter was reinstated. And if you go to the left, and we don't have this picture, so you just kind of vision it. Peter's house and Capernaum's there, and this is the headquarters. This is the mission base of Jesus. And it's a powerful place to go because Jesus used this place constantly. Was that me? Well, time's up. God bless you. Have a good week. So today we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to kind of get in this image. I have this picture up here. And I think it's kind of, this is a real picture of the Sermon on the Mount in the area that you were. And I want you to get your mind visually set. What would Jesus say and what would he look like and how would he react to you? Put yourself in this valley. And I want this to come up uh, time and time again because this is what we're going to be engaging in. People were sitting there and listening to this amazing Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is, I don't know if Matthew really depicts it correctly. I think that Jesus came up here on a regular basis and taught during this season. It probably wasn't one full sermon. If it was, it was masterful. It was unbelievable. But I'm, I'm assuming that Matthew, the writer of this, just kind of put up here, and Jesus used to sit and he would teach the masses. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Here's some of the things that there were said about the Sermon on the Mount from believers and non-believers. Augustine, St. Augustine, describes the Sermon on the Mount as the perfect standard for Christian life. When we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, it's the perfect standard of Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer based his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, as an exposition or an explanation of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were going to be a disciple, the cost of discipleship, you could dig it out of the Sermon on the Mount. So those are some believer ideas of what they believe on the Sermon on the Mount. What about unbelievers? There's a guy named Mahatma Gandhi, right? And he had a, uh, an idea of what the Sermon on the Mount was. He said when he read it, it was so impressed upon him that he changed some of the things that he did in his life. It had a huge impact on the way he lived his life. Though he never really put Jesus as his Lord and Savior, he said the Sermon on the Mount really changed the way that he thinks. There's a guy named Nikita Khrushchev. Everybody remember him? He said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He was an unbeliever. He says, I tell you the difference between Christians and me is that if you slap me in the face, I'll hit you back so hard I'm not I'll knock your head right off. That's what he said. He said, I hate the Sermon on the Mount because it really rubs me wrong. I don't want to turn the other cheek. And he said, what is inside the Sermon on the Mount was rude and, and, and it was almost un, unhuman because it challenged him so deeply. So it changes and, and, and really convicts people. The point of this conversation that we're having right here is this. The Sermon on the Mount is not an easy reading section. 
It's not one of those sections that you read in the Bible and go, oh, this is just so cute and flowery and fluffy. It's actually really challenging, convicting, and hopefully you'll find some encouragement because one of my spiritual gifts is to try and make challenging stuff encouraging. It's also not a bestseller material. If you're looking to write a bestseller, probably not from this section. Go to another place because this is not really bestseller. Not that it's not great writing, but what happens is most people don't want to read it. They don't want to hear what's inside of the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's a lot of pushback here because people struggle with what's said in the Sermon on the Mount in many different areas. So what I want to do is I want to get us set up for the summer and kind of lay the foundation for where are we at in the Bible. We're going to go through Matthew 5 through 7 over the, the, the uh, summer season, but we'll piece by piece it. We'll take some sections and we'll read through it and then we'll teach through it. But we're still going to continue to work in our sections. We have our section over here, if you're new, this is Team Salvation. They're praying for people to have salvation and actually allow their salvation to grow. This is Team Revelation. They're praying for people to actually hear from God and, and understand God. Good job, Revelation. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but for three and a half years, I've been sitting kind of where Dana and Dustin was during the worship set, and I moved over to this section over here right before my sister because I'm about team transformation. This is my team over here. And the reason why is we want people to be transformed. So hopefully you come in this summer, 90 days, and you'll walk out of this summer totally transformed. Renewing of mind and image, getting closer to Christ and being sanctified in your walk with Jesus, as Jeremy talked about next week. So what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount? If you guys um, know the Bible a little bit, and if you don't, we'll kind of give you an explanation. But here's what's going on. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. He goes before John the Baptist, and he gets baptized. And right after baptism, I don't know if you guys realize this, but he goes into temptation. Just like when we get baptized. We go into temptation as well. For whatever reason, that's a signification that the enemy wants to destroy us. And we need to stand up. And it happens after you're baptized. You would think it would happen before, but it happened just like Jesus. Jesus goes into Mount Temptation for 40 days and 40 nights, which is above Jericho. When we go to Israel, you go to Jericho and you see it. And you can see Mount Temptation where Jesus was up there. And then after the temptation, Jesus comes back and finds out some bad news. And I just kind of want to read a little bit. Uh, from Matthew chapter 4, just so that we can set the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus kind of begins his ministry. It says, when Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So now Jesus has now come off the Temptation Mountain, and he realizes that John the Baptist has been arrested, and now he's like, I've got to go and start. It's time for me to step up and do something. Just like G Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit is challenging you this summer. Maybe it's time for you to step up and start your ministry. Jesus continues to do all kinds of crazy things. And at the end of Matthew chapter 4, here's what it says. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people, brought him, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. One version says he healed them all. 
Large crowds get from Galilee, Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from the region across from the Jordan followed him. So as Jesus begins his ministry, he's out of temptation. His cousin, John the Baptist, is now in prison and heading to death, literally heading to death. I know, it's really bad. I won't use that in first, second service, so just don't let him... And that's where Jesus comes. And Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, starts using the first words that Jesus preached. Things are happening, but Matthew comes in chapter 5 and says, here's the things that Jesus is preaching. Now, who is he preaching to? There's large crowds. It's family members of people that are sick and ill, but it's also political leaders and religious leaders. It's wealthy landowners. People are hearing from them from the West Bank, from Syria, and from uh, Judea and all the region. They want to know, who is this man and what is he doing? Because he's changing the way the world is reacting to God. And that's where we come in Jesus' first uh, place. These are the first word Matthew writes about Jesus in his ministry. And so if you're able to stand, we're going to read the first five verses of Matthew chapter 5. The first two verses will be our memory verse throughout the summer series. And then I'm going to read 5, 3, 4, and 5 just so that it's sitting in context. And it says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Our main verse today is just going to be 5-3. There's so much in that verse, we don't need to go anything beyond that. But just, I wanted to read it in context. You see, in the Beatitudes, there's a lot of blessings that Jesus is communicating So let's just pray. I think it's important that we just open up our hearts right now and ask God to start working and ministering in us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We ask for you to move. We sang songs about how glorious you are, Father. Let us truly understand that. Let us soak that in. That you are a good, glorious God that wants to take us out of the darkness and bring us into light, want to take us to a place of brokenness and make us right. Father, reveal your heart to us, your will and your words. Let our ears and our minds and our souls hear from you today. Bring us to a place of salvation or expand our salvation or sanctifying experience. And Lord, I pray that you begin a transformational work. You continue to rebuild someone or you end that transformational work so someone can be whole and complete and a true miracle and testimony for you. Father, we love you and we praise you and ask for you to speak mightily today. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Today I want to answer a few questions. We're just going to go from Matthew 5, 3. It's just one small verse, but there's plenty of meat on this today to really stick in this verse the whole time. But we need to answer a few questions, and I want to give you an answer to what does the word blessed mean. I'm going to give you a very simple, maybe even a crude answer of blessed. It's not very dynamic, but it's enough for us to understand. I'm also going to ask you what does poor in spirit mean, and hopefully you'll understand what that means. 
And hopefully you'll have a working definition as you walk away today. And my hope is that as we communicate what the Sermon on the Mount is and what this concept of poor in spirit is, that you will find some great application, that you will find some, some great and deeper understanding, and you will walk out of here with a better idea of, of what it means to be poor in spirit. I think that's what Jesus wants us to really understand. Now, the last few months, we've made a decision as a church to, to, um, to use images to help us better understand sermons. Now, if you go to church week in and week out, like me and my family do, sermons, even though they might be fantastic, start to blur together. And so what we've done is try to put images that make sense. Does anybody know what the image was last week? A bathtub. A dirty, stinky man was in a bathtub. And we are talking about sanctification. Now, that bathtub series will, or message will probably stick in your brain because you'll remember Jeremy in a bathtub. And whatever he said was fine, but we understand that's the bathtub. Today, we're going to use an image to start off our sermon series. And it's probably one of the greatest games of all time. It's called Monopoly. Today's message is going to be about Monopoly, so hopefully this will make sense to you as we expand the message. This is one of the funnest games. Who in here can't play this with any family members in their house at all? <laughs> Go ahead, raise your hand. You can raise it, I know. I definitely can't. My wife has thrown it away because somebody in the family is too competitive. <laughs> Still working on our salvation experience. Now, Monopoly is a really fun game, and I'll tell you the definition, but here's what I want to do. I want to do a little group activity. I want you to tell somebody around you if you've played the game, and if you haven't, just listen to someone. Tell me what your favorite game piece is. Tell them, them, tell them not me. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear. And then tell them what your favorite property is, okay? So go ahead and do that, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to go get a drink of water. Tell your neighbor what your favorite game piece is and what your favorite property is. All right, I'm going to ask a really awkward question. If you don't feel comfortable, don't raise your hand. Who has never played Monopoly? Hallelujah, Jesus. It's my favorite game. I love Monopoly. My, my, uh, my favorite uh, person on this or my favorite piece is the car and the battleship. If I got one of those, I'm probably going to win. It's all about the, the, what you get. I never understood the thimble. I hated that. It didn't make any sense. If I got the thimble, I'm like, I'm losing for sure. And then, I mean, I love dogs, but the Scotty never did anything for me. I don't even have my phone, so I don't even know what that is. So I lost, I lost my phone. So that's not me. Somebody's phone's really loud. So here's the pieces. My favorite is the car because I like to drive really fast. If you've seen me on the road, I drive pretty fast. And then the battleship, it's a destroyer. It just destroys people and things. And that's really the essence of Monopoly. Now, this game is really powerful. That's why we're using this today. This tells us about life. The whole idea is round and round we go. Let's get to go as soon as we can because it's payday. And it tells us all kinds of things that happen in life here, right? 
We, we, we land on an electricity and we got to pay a bill. We land on community chests. Sometimes it's an inheritance. Sometimes it's a tax. In this place, sometimes you're just visiting jail. Sometimes you go to jail. <laughs> this tells a lot about life. And hopefully you hit free parking because that's where it all starts. That's when you start putting properties and hotels and you start really dominating the game. Here's the idea of monopoly. Think about this for a second. You want everybody to be bankrupt by the end of the game and they're broke. The ultimate winner is everybody owes you money and you have all the cash. I just happen to have a bunch of cash on me right now. I got 30 large on the, on the five hundies. I love lots of that. I walk around with this daily. It makes me feel better about life. <laughs> Monopoly. It's going to be a long sermon here. Okay, <laughs> God, I'll move on. Sorry, get off the Monopoly. The idea of the game is for us to become bankrupt. There's one winner... And everybody else is bankrupt. And in my house, the actual winner doesn't win because everybody hates the winner. And we don't talk to them for a day or two. And then we don't play the game for at least six months. That's our image. So Jesus says, and we'll get back to the image in just a second. Jesus says in his first words in ministry from Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the message today. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about here? As Americans, we live in one of the richest countries in the world. But I'll tell you the truth. One in every two of us understand what poor means. We might have all kinds of possessions. But in 2014, they did a survey, and it said 52% of Americans could not come up with $400 cash to maybe fix a tire or something. And if you're trying to buy two tires or four tires uh, for 400 bucks, good luck. Maybe we got some tire people here, but I tried to buy two for my daughter's car a couple weeks ago. It was almost 400 bucks for two. So it said that people couldn't come up with $400 cash because most of us, one in every two, would have to borrow the money or put it on a credit card because we didn't have the physical cash available. So the truth is, we're living paycheck to paycheck, and we understand the concept of being poor in spirit or poor here. That's what we see. Some would say Jesus is speaking about poor here, actually physically having less money, saying he's trying to challenge us to say that riches and possessions come between us and God. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, that is true. He does say that. But that's in Matthew chapter 6, 24, where it says you can't have two gods. You can't serve two gods, money and God. He does say that, but here in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think that's what he's trying to get to. He's trying to challenge us. Jesus is making a different point. The reason why people get confused, if you go to the book of Luke in Luke 6, 20, Luke writes, blessed are those who are poor. And he doesn't add in spirit. Matthew believes this is an important thing because it really makes the message stronger. He says this is a very important part. Now, in the Old Testament, there's not the words poor in spirit. There's really no translation from the Hebrew to the Greek. It's not there, but there's something really close. And David writes in Psalm 34, 18, a, a version of what might be really close and what Jesus is refining. It says, 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to those that are poor in spirit and are crushed, are bankrupt, that are literally at the end of the Monopoly game with no money and have a huge resentment at the person you're giving the cash to. The Lord is near to them and wants us to understand that. Jesus really refines this in his ministry as he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now here Jesus is concerned with realities, not spiritual realities, excuse me, not material possessions. In this particular case, he's not talking about just being poor, lack of money. He's actually talking about spiritually poor. That's what we're trying to understand here. And really what we want to understand is he's talking about being spiritually bankrupt. Coming to the end of the game and realizing that I'm bankrupt or spiritually bankrupt. That's what he wants us to understand. He wants us to realize that those that understand spiritual bankruptcy will have a deeper and uh, revelation with God. Does that make sense? In the Beatitudes, it starts with this word, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why are those Jesus' first words? Do you realize that this is the number one, this is one of the two foundational principles in all of Christianity that Jesus wants to teach us. This is a foundational piece. That's why Jesus gets on that Sermon on the Mount. We're sitting here listening to God. We're trying to come face to face with Jesus and having the Holy Spirit come. And he's saying, listen, this is a foundational piece for Christians. Those that understand our poor in spirit can then build upon them a, a life of faith with God. It's foundational. And that's why we're starting this summer series with the Sermon on the Mount and the first words that Jesus spoke because it has the actual opportunity to become a huge blessing in your life. So what is the word blessing? In the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek or that mourn. What does that word blessing mean? And here's kind of a very simple but I think powerful idea of what a blessing is. Blessed is a sense of approval. God is saying that he has expressed his approval on people that he has blessed. So in essence, the word blessed is to be approved by God. Now, what would be a blessing to me might not necessarily be a blessing to you. If a taco truck came in after service and started giving away free tacos, blessing. <laughs> Amen. For some of you are like, ooh, I don't like Mexican food, the salsa, it's not good, the beans, no way. But for me, it would be huge. Sometimes blessings are, are, are different for, every, for other people. Not all blessings are the same. God is a God that understands you specifically, and he wants to give you personal blessings. And it's really saying, good job, keep on track, let me continue to bless you. And he also blesses people that we don't want him to bless. I don't know why. I've got that on my question list. God, what are you doing here? But a blessing is a sense of approval from God. In the Greek, there's these two words, one that you're probably familiar with, which is pneuma, which is spirit. The other one is tohas, which is this, this, this word for poor. And in this, the, the poor in spirit, here's a definition for this. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's to understand that you absolutely have nothing of worth to offer God. That's what spiritual bankruptcy is. It's mean you're cashing in all your money 
and saying whatever I have and whatever property I have on the board, I don't have anything really of worth to give to God. Why would you walk around with a stack of money that's useless? It makes me feel better, but it doesn't cash out anywhere. Not in my house, not in your house, and not in this world. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. We need to understand what spiritual bankruptcy is, or as Jesus would say, poor in spirit, because that is actually a blessing and brings us to the place of the kingdom of God. What is our life with Jesus? It's not about this. Several pieces of property and a stack of money. But the American dream is just that, what? Buy a piece of land or buy a house and get stacks of cash so that we can retire and live a life of glory. Hey, I'm into it. I'm trying to get it. I bought a house and I'm trying to save some money because I want to retire. But is that really what God is telling us? This is what life is in the world. This is the game of monopoly that we're all going after. But is this really going to benefit us in the end? I would say probably not. Now, generally, in the sermon recently, I've been telling kind of crazy stories to kind of exemplify what we're trying to communicate. A couple weeks ago on Mother's Day, I told the story about Aggie and a woman without a country. It was really powerful. We were all crying. A couple new people came, and we were weeping. It was really bad. Hopefully, you're back. Thanks for coming. It was really a kind of a heart-wrenching story that my sister told me. And today, I want to do is I want to look into the Bible and use the Bible to tell some stories because broken people are really God's plan. Spiritual brokenness, that poor in spirit, is really how God works and moves. It happened in my life, and it does happen in your life, and it can happen in your life right now if you're open. Here's some of the stories. You know, on Wednesday night, what we do here is we put out a bunch of round tables, about 125 or 30 seats, and what we do is we line up some food over here. We got some great people cooking. My buddy Dustin has got a group of people cooking. And then we go through verse by verse, different than we teach on Sunday. We're going through the book of Corinthians right now, 2 Corinthians. And in, in one of the uh, messages that we heard a couple of weeks ago, it was talking about the earthen vessels or jars of clay. Right? We're all uh, clay pots, however your translation is. And in this section, when we look at it in our Bible we see that there's this brokenness that's really from God. And here's what it says. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. When we understand that we're broken and that we're just fragile earthen vessels with nothing of worth inside of us, it says the power that comes comes from God and it doesn't come from you. And then if you continue, it says, you might have pressure on every way, but you won't be crushed. You'll be perplexed, but you won't be in despair. You'll be struck down or you'll be broken, but you won't be destroyed. When you think about the monopoly game of life, those that are bankrupt doesn't mean that you can't live. Bankruptcy today in America doesn't mean that you can't make it and live your life. Several people come out of bankruptcy and live a great life. They get reorganized and they get their money right and they have a life that truly is better than they've ever had before. Bankruptcy in our head, though, automatically means failure, poor, on the streets, drinking out of a black bag or a brown bag. Not true. In essence, God says those people that understand that have an opportunity to really change their life and be in a better situation. 
There's another one that kind of gives us the same illustration. The Apostle Paul, one of the great theological men in the Bible, writing all kinds of great works about how to be godly and right with God and sanctified. And he just writes deep and powerful stuff, says... At one point, he's asking Jesus, I've been in ministry for years, and I've been asking you to remove this thorn in my side, this issue that we don't know. Could have been lust or whatever he was struggling with, ministry, people, his wife or old wife, I don't know. But he says, I've got this thorn in my side, and he's like, Lord, I'm giving you everything, and I've asked three times for you to remove this, and he never gets it removed. And here's what it says, let me find it. Here's what it said, and this is, for me, this is a foundational. If you've ever met with me and you're new to Christianity, I go to this verse a lot because this is where you have to start your faith. Here's what it says. Jesus responds back to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness or in your brokenness, in your poor in spirit, in your spiritual bankruptcy. That's when the power of Jesus comes. Even if it's not because he's not removing that thorn, that poor in spirit, that moment of being crushed, has an opportunity to be a blessing and where God shines through your brokenness. He wants to bring us to that point so that we don't claim all the good things for ourselves. Here's the last one, and this one has to do with uh, money. And that's why I did it last. This is one of my favorite verses. Last summer we did parables and we went through a bunch of parables. And one of the parables I taught on was the tax collector and the Pharisee. And you got a religious leader going into the church and then you got a tax collector and they come up and the religious leader's like, I served on serve day, I did a Bible study, I put some money in the offering. I show people that I have a journey sticker on my car. Man, I am good. And this poor uh, individual. <laughs> Sorry, Sue. This poor young man, he's a wretch. And then the tax collector, he says, I can't even look up into the sky. But the tax collector stood at the distance and he said, he didn't even look up to the heaven, but he beats on his chest and he says, have mercy on me, I'm just a sinner. And then Jesus says, that's the guy that's justified. Those that are poor in spirit that bang on their chest and say, I have nothing to give to this world and to God. All I have is my relationship to him. That's when we understand and we are poor in spirit and God can move powerfully in our, in our life. That's the image that he wants to give us. Those that are poor in spirit, those that are spiritually bankrupt, that is a foundation for you to grow in Christianity. Some of you haven't grown correctly. You ever had a broken arm or something broken, a finger or something, and it doesn't grow correctly? <laughs> and what, you know what they do? If you want to fix it, they re-break it and do it over. That's what God wants to do for some of you that have been Christians for years. He wants to break you down, and he wants to build you back up the correct way. Spiritually bankrupt so that you can grow on a new platform with Jesus Christ so that your summer will be the most powerful summer that you ever had. Charles, uh, Clarence Jordan writes, God does not force his kingdom upon anybody, but he gladly gives it all to who know, who know that they are losers without him, who humbly seek him. In the game of Monopoly, 
everybody ends up losers in my house. If I win the game, trust me, I'm the biggest loser. Nobody will talk to me. I had to borrow the game from Dustin because our kids threw it away in Palm Springs four years ago. So I go, Dustin, do you have the game? Because my family threw it away. We, we keep throwing away games. Some of us need some spiritual healing, and uh, I guess it's me. So what's some application? At the end of the message, it says, blessed, those that are approved by God, understand this concept of poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean to us? Here's, here's a little bit of application so that we can walk out of here making this Monopoly game board message uh, useful. The result of understanding being poor in spirit says you receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is that? Afterlife means I will go into heaven and I will be with the three-in-one God Almighty and I will experience him and I will have the hope of the world with me and I will be up there worshiping and worshiping and celebrating and praising. I'll be in a new body and I won't have any more sicknesses. Afterlife, we understand that. But it also says that the kingdom of heaven can be on earth as well as in heaven. And when I allow myself to be in poor in spirit, I, and I have this foundational principle inside my heart, the way that I live my life on earth transforms as well. I am no longer the same man that I was 15 years ago when the gospel of Jesus came into my life. I happened to be locked up several years ago, and the book that I read six times before I read anything else was Matthew because I didn't really understand the Sermon on the Mount. I read it over and over every day. And then someone says, there's more of the Bible you can continue to read. And so I did. When you put this principle in your life, you have an opportunity for it to really magnify on earth as it is in heaven. You will experience some of God's richness and goodness on earth when you put this principle in your life. That's the application. Walk out of here realizing that you don't have a lot of cash. This doesn't make you feel good. It looks good in the bank account. It looks good in my pocket. But the truth is, it's useless. There's nothing of value at all. When Jesus says, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, he's saying this. He's declaring that before God, before we can enter God's kingdom, we need to come to an utter spiritual bankruptcy place. Our currency in this world is useless to him. We need to come to a place where we realize what I have to offer is not what God really wants. He wants me to change the way that I am, be spiritually bankrupt and broken, and allow him to come into our life. When he says, blessed are those... Uh, for theirs is the, spirit, the kingdom of God, poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. This monopolizing statement changes your game and your life forever. It changes everything. It's revolutionary. And ultimately, you get this bankrupt picture. I found this online, and it's the old guy. Bankruptcy. You don't pass go. You don't collect $200. That's the mindset of this world. This is where we come from. In the game of monopoly... The whole idea is to not be bankrupt. In the game of Christianity, it's all about being bankrupt. It's about giving all your properties away and saying, I no longer need these because I understand this doesn't mean anything. And I'm not telling you to sell your property and give it the journey to the church. 
I'm telling you that this doesn't have the same currency that that spiritual bankruptcy God, that, that God has to offer. He wants us to come before God and understand that in him we can bring a whole different attitude, a spiritual bankruptcy. Here's what uh, Psalm 51:17 says. Sacrifice your, your desire. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject the broken or repented heart, O oh God. That verse tells us this is what God wants from us. We need to have that desire. When you're in a place of desire, God says, I love that and I won't reject that broken and contrite heart or that spiritual poor attitude in your life. We all need to understand that we are bankrupt. This world is all about monopoly. That's the last time you'll see it today. This world is all about the monopoly game. It's not really round and round you go, but you keep going around and you try and dodge all the pitfalls. In Christ, it's completely different. In Christ, he's saying, I want you to become spiritual bankrupt. And in these things I made some last night, these are, these are my own money pieces. And they say, bankrupt for Christ. And I'm just going to throw some out here today. I want you to realize that when you're bankrupt for Christ, you have the ability to see God work truly and powerfully. God wants to move today in our hearts. He wants us to realize the game of monopoly won't change us. But the game of Jesus Christ being poor in spirit for that kingdom of heaven will change us forever. Not only on earth, but it is in heaven. So the question is, do you want to continue trying pass and go and collecting a paycheck? Or do you really want to press into the blessings and come to God and receive and collect all that he has for you? We are all spiritually bankrupt if we really have a right relationship with God. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Father, I come before you as a broken man that has been built up and lives as the son of the most high God. And I ask that you will work in us today to continue to build and transform those that need a spiritual bankruptcy in their heart. And for those that have lived this for years, Lord, give them a word or something that they can walk away with that will be foundational to their walk this day forward. One of the first acts of turning your life over and being bankrupt for God is accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. If you're here today and someone brought you in and the message resonates and you feel God tugging on your heart, will you say a prayer of salvation with me so that you can start this summer right and let this 90 days of summer transform your life? If you're here today and you want that, repeat after me. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart. Come into my soul and be my Savior. I know I have nothing to offer you and I receive all that you have to offer me. Thank you for dying on the cross and giving me eternal life. Holy Spirit, come over me right now and fill me up because you are Lord and you are my Savior now and forever. Amen. Today we're going to do communion and I want you to get right before God. Communion is a time that we say, I'm going to put you first. At this church, we have communion elements set out, and we ask you to do the work. We're not here to serve you. 
We're asking you to come before God and put the cracker in the juice and remember what he did. And I'm going to throw more of these out. And if you want to pick some souvenirs, I'll have some out as well out in the lobby. I want you to walk away and start this summer correctly with Christ. Knowing that God wants to work and move. So as these elements have been prayed for during the song and the next uh, couple of songs, come up and, and join us in communion. Amen.